Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Will the 2020 election be compromised by foreign interference? Is voting by mail secure? Can American voters have faith in the integrity of our electoral system? To answer these and related questions, I'm rebroadcasting a conversation that first aired in a series being produced by our colleagues in governance studies at Brookings. In it, Daryl West, Vice President and Director of Governance Studies, interviews senior fellow Elaine K. Mark and fellow Chris Mazzarol to get their perspectives on these critical questions. Also on today's show, senior fellow Sarah Bender discusses the coming confirmation battle over the nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to replace Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. What procedural tools do Senate Democrats have to slow or stop the process, and what powers can the Republican majority use to confirm her before the election? You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get information about and links to all our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, The Current, and our events podcast. First up, here's Sarah Bender with What's Happening in Congress. I'm Sarah Binder, a senior fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. The death of Supreme Court Justice and liberal icon Ruth Bader Ginsburg has created a political firestorm just five weeks before a sharply contested presidential election. That's not a lot of time for a Republican Senate to consider President Trump's nomination of a Court of Appeals judge, Amy Barrett. But the Senate is still more likely than not to confirm Barrett days before the November elections even were Democrats to gain control of the White House, Senate, or both. Keep in mind, just four years ago in 2016, Senate Republicans refused to consider President Obama's nominee, Judge Merrick Garland, for a seat on the Supreme Court. Why? Because Republicans said the seat should be filled by the winner of the presidential election that November. That was then. This is now. A Republican is in the White House. A Republican majority stands ready to confirm the nominee. So here's what lies ahead in the Senate and why it matters. First, the minority party has some procedural rights, but the majority party has most of the power. A broad array of Senate rules govern the handling of Supreme Court nominations. Senate rules send nominations straight to committee, where investigators vet the backgrounds of nominees. Since 1975, it's taken on average about 40 days from nomination to a hearing and another week until a committee vote. If the Senate keeps to the schedule they've announced, it'll be about 14 days from nomination to a hearing and less than 35 days from nomination to confirmation. Committee rules give the minority party significant procedural rights if Democrats want to drag their feet to buy time to marshal public opinion against the nominee. Any member of the committee can delay a meeting of the committee by a week and at least two senators from the minority party need to be present for the committee to conduct business. Given the time crunch for considering a nomination, Democrats could theoretically exploit the rules to slow down Judge Barrett's path to a confirmation vote. But there's a hitch. It's tough for the minority party to enforce their prerogatives under the rules. Just last year, Judiciary Committee Chair Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina swept aside Democrats' protests when he ignored committee rules and pushed a controversial measure to a vote. Democrats' objections failed to stop Republicans. Second point, the minority party can delay, but it really can't stop a confirmation vote. Once the Judiciary Committee issues its recommendation, the full Senate considers the nomination. 
The Republican Senate in 2017 banned filibusters of Supreme Court nominees. That means today it only takes a simple majority of the Senate to cut off debate and bring the chamber to a confirmation vote. That's how the Republican-led Senate confirmed Trump's first two court nominees, Justice Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, over the objections of nearly every Democrat. Democrats could still slow down the nomination by maxing out on the number of speeches allowed under the rules or by refusing to grant consent to the Republican leader when he invariably needs the consent of all 100 senators to set the Senate's floor agenda. But once Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky files a cloture motion to end debate, Senate rules start the countdown first to a cloture vote to cut off debate and if successful to an up or down confirmation vote. Under Senate rules, the clock will run for about three days until that confirmation vote. Only two Republicans, Susan Collins of Maine, facing a tough fight for re-election, and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, only those two have expressed any doubt about the Senate filling the vacancy before the election. If both decide to oppose cloture, the remaining 51 Republican senators will still easily confirm Judge Barrett. Third, Democrats are really appealing to voters, not fellow senators. Senate Democrats seem to have a limited appetite for trying to blow up the Senate as elections are approaching amidst the pandemic. Instead, Democratic nominee Joe Biden and the Democrats are expanding the scope of conflict, drawing the audience into the fight, making plain to voters what a conservative court could mean for everyday Americans, for women's reproductive rights, for the fate of the Affordable Care Act, and for legions of other policies favored by popular majorities and protected so far by past Supreme Court decisions. Adding a sixth reliably conservative justice to the court could produce a reliable conservative majority for the first time in decades. At the end of the day, these confirmation battles matter. Why? Because the court's legitimacy, the perceived authority of an unelected court to make binding rules for the entire nation depends on Americans believing in the court's authority. But if the confirmation process and voting blocks on the court become nearly or entirely polarized along party lines, the court's legitimacy and its power will surely be put at risk. And now here's Daryl West with Elaine K. Mark and Chris Meserol on threats to our election. Thanks for joining our podcast. I'm Daryl West, Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and co-author with Brookings President John Allen of a new book about AI entitled Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. The fall campaign is well underway and the election is taking place amid a pandemic, a national recession, and protests against racism. Public opinion polls show Democratic candidate Joe Biden with a major lead over President Donald Trump, yet there are concerns that disinformation campaigns and foreign interference will allow Trump to sway voters and possibly win the election. There is worry that social media platforms will spread false information and inflame racial divisions. Uh, People wonder what is happening and what can be done to limit the possible damage. In addition, there are risks of foreign intervention in the form of disinformation campaigns and cyber attacks on critical election infrastructure. 
To discuss these issues, we are pleased to be joined by two distinguished experts. Elaine Kmark is a Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at Brookings and Director of the Center for Effective Public Management, and she specializes in election issues and is co-author with me of an e-book on election disinformation. Chris Meserol is a fellow in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings and Deputy Director of the Brookings AI Initiative. He works on disinformation and the national security aspects of technology. So, Elaine, I'd like to uh, start with uh, you. So, as I mentioned, I have this uh, new book about uh, AI written with uh, John Allen. It addresses problems of technology and what we can do about those issues. One of the concerns is the role of social media platforms in spreading false information and promoting racial divisions. What is happening with social media platforms and how are they being used to spread false information? Well, Daryl, as we saw in the 2016 election, social media was used very, very um, carefully to target African-American voters and to try and convince them that there was no difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, to try and convince them to vote for a third party candidate. There were fake groups put up that were not real African-American citizens, there was a lot going on and it worked quite well. In two cities in particular, Milwaukee and Detroit, African-American turnout was way, way below 2012 levels and frankly enough below 2012 levels to give uh, Donald Trump those two states in the Electoral College. So it worked well and um, it's going to be attempted again. Now, there's a little bit more sophistication out there these days than there was, but we already know from reports from the DNI and and the intelligence community that the Russians are planning to do this once again, uh, planning to target and and to inflame racial um, differences. The other thing I think I'd say is that while in 2016 we concentrated on this being Uh, directed at American elections from outside the country. In 2020, we're going to see a lot of this inside the country from coming from inside the country itself. In other words, the same techniques of disinformation, hiding the true sources of information, etc., are being used inside the country. And just in the last uh, couple of days, we've seen a large distribution of a very fake gathering of supposed doctors, none of whom can be found as to where they practice medicine, um, advocating the use of hydroxychloroquine and down and saying that we don't need to wear masks. And uh, Twitter took this off its its site and and told Eric Trump, who had tweeted it, not to tweet it. They didn't tell the same thing to the president who had treated, tweeted it. But this keeps going on and on and on, whether it's the election, whether it's the COVID-19, the amount of disinformation out there is just overwhelming and really hard to play catch up on. So you mentioned the Russians, and of course, this year, people are worried about a number of different countries intervening. So we have Russia, China, the Saudis, Iran, and who knows uh, who else. But it's an interesting question whether they're all going to intervene on the same side, Uh, (laughs) because you might imagine a situation where Russia and the Saudis are very pro-Trump because of their uh, policy alignment. Iran, of course, hates Trump, so maybe they will uh, intervene against him. 
China, who knows, kind of a wild card in all this. So what would you expect in terms of these other countries? And are they simply going to repeat the Russia playbook? Are they going to have new wrinkles this year? Uh, Well, I think everybody is going to try to improve on the Russia playbook. And one of the things that AI does, and and I think you've written a lot about this, Daryl, the scariest thing about AI is the increased ability to alter images and make it look as if somebody is saying something that in fact they're not saying. So we can imagine this coming out of Russia coming out of who knows where, altered images of Joe Biden saying things that he didn't say, of Donald Trump saying things that he didn't say. And of course, we already saw a very famous example of this with someone someone making Nancy Pelosi look like she was drunk, look like she was slurring her words. And that went all over the place. And, and Facebook was really irresponsible in not taking it down. They just labeled it as false, but they didn't take it down. So, Chris, I'd like to bring you into the conversation. So, Elaine mentioned the problem of disinformation campaigns coming from abroad. Uh, But, of course, there also are other types of foreign interventions that could be uh, problematic, such as uh, cyber attacks on the elections infrastructure, disrupting the vote, or just general efforts to sow public mistrust about the integrity of the election. So, what are the problems do you see in these areas? Thanks, Daryl. I, I think the I would echo a lot of what um, Elaine said earlier. Although I'd say, you know, if you think about the the importance of cybersecurity versus what you might call cognitive security or information security of of our political discourse, I'm probably more worried about the latter. I, you know, I think we've got we obviously want to take care to make sure that all of our electoral infrastructure are as well protected as possible. But if you know a, a good majority of the American public do not view that process as legitimate, that's probably the worst case scenario, and that's where a lot of misinformation about the electoral, you know, the integrity of our electoral system comes into play. And I think I would echo again, kind of Elaine's concerns about you know what Russia has done in the past, what they're likely to do going forward. I am concerned that you know if you are a rival of the United States or um, another geopolitical power in the, in the global context. If you want to influence the U.S. election right now, it's not actually that hard to do, pr- primarily because a lot of the disinformation uh, that's floating out around the election is being distributed and retweeted and posted by you know very high high level officials within the United States, including uh, the president and his campaign staff. You know the the video that Elaine just mentioned was actually retweeted, I believe, or distributed by the Trump administration itself. And so it's not hard to kind of get uh, you know pretty good if you're a foreign adversary and you're trying to weaken the United States. One of the easiest things you can do is just help distribute uh, and produce content that will feed into this ecosystem that's being leveraged by the, the Trump campaign in particular. One thing I will say in terms of foreign adversaries and what their goals are, I know that there are a lot of other uh, countries that are looking to follow the, the Russia playbook, but I'm not convinced that they're looking to follow it entirely. Russia is interested in as weak in, in weakening. I don't know that they're necessarily pro-Trump or anti-Trump. I think they're just interested in the United States that's weakened and a United States that's fighting amongst itself is, is one that's weakened to the point of you know potentially even collapse. Whereas with China, I think that they're interested in weakening the United States, but they are not necessarily interested in all of the institutions that the United States has built to maintain global order, things like NATO. I don't think that they're 
looking for those to outright collapse. And so I think they're a little bit more careful than Russia in launching disinformation campaigns that they don't have full control over. They'll still do it in select cases. They've certainly done it with you know information related to the the, the virus, um, but they're not. I'm less concerned about China trying to cause as much mayhem within uh, the U.S. electoral system as as Russia has in the past. Yeah, that's a very interesting point that uh, the various uh, countries may have very different equities in this campaign, have different interests. Uh, and may end up uh, following a different approach. So uh, right now, everybody does seem fixated on uh, Russia, uh, and rightfully uh, so, but uh, there are a lot of other actors, and they may be uh, interested in doing other things. So Elaine, uh, a lot of the things we're talking about, obviously, we saw in 2016, and also there were some related activities that took place in the 2018 congressional elections. Do you think the 2020 elections will be a repeat of 2016 and 2018 in terms of the tactics and the approaches, or are there going to be new wrinkles in the disinformation game that we should worry about? I think there'll be two new wrinkles in on behalf of people promoting disinformation. The first one is going to be that they will hide their identities better. Um, in 2016, there were web administrators from the Bernie Sanders campaign who were finding out in real time that they were getting messages and and forwarding messages that originated in Albania, that originated in St. Petersburg, that Al- originated in Moldova. And I think that people will be more clever about hiding the origins of those messages and trying to make sure that they um, look like or come from American locations. I think the second, second thing that we'll see is that there will be a lot more video being used and a lot more deceptive video being used, mostly because of the great advances that have been made in artificial intelligence, making it so much easier and cheaper to produce convincing video, even when it's not true. I think the one uh, upside to this is I think that the public is going to be a little bit more skeptical than they were four years ago, um, a little bit more careful about sending on things that just don't make sense. Somebody came up to me when I was at the beach a couple weeks ago and just said, you know, I got this text saying that Henry Kissinger was all for Donald Trump for this reason and that reason. And, and she showed it to me and it was, it was obviously a fake. So I think people are getting a little bit more sophisticated about sorting out what's true and what's not true. And that, that will be useful. But Elaine, that's creating new opportunities for you to become a fact checker with your friends. So. <laughs> that's that's what I that's what I was doing. I mean, honestly, the fact that this happened on the beach um, by somebody who's no interest in politics really surprised me. But a good sign, definitely. So, Chris, your thoughts on any new wrinkles in 2020? I would echo uh, everything Elaine said, but I would I would also add just kind of two other uh, points. One is. You know, in terms of AI tools and the, the production of disinformation, one of the other things that I'm really concerned about is not just new AI videos like deepfakes, but the, the use of AI and uh, deepfake technology to create personas that look like real people with real expertise that are then used to um, plant stories and legitimate outlets. We've already seen this start to happen. There was a op-ed in the Jerusalem uh, Post, I believe, recently that was 
uh, created and, and published under a byline with a picture of someone who looked very real, but it, it turned out to have been created by a deep fake, uh, the, pity, the video any, or the picture anyway. And I, I think we're going to see deep fake technology used uh, to fool all kinds of social proof that we're currently using to try and assess the credibility of different uh, sources, uh, including in the mainstream media. The other kind of really interesting wrinkle that I think we're going to see, and we're already starting to see it, is the rise of um, social media platforms that are not created by American companies uh, or even Western companies, uh, in particular those from China like TikTok, that are used extensively in the West and no longer just in China or other countries. And what's concerning here is that we don't really have much, you know, we struggle to you know, to, to put good systems and good processes and policies in place for companies like Facebook and Twitter. With a company like TikTok, we, you know, it's not owned by an American company. And so there's fewer sources or fewer ways to try and um, understand what's happening on the platform and control what's happening on the platform. And an example would be of why that could potentially be dangerous for our electoral um, politics is that, you know, in the lead up to Trump's rally in Oklahoma earlier this summer, there was a major campaign on TikTok by what are called K-pop stars to get American teenagers to sign up to attend the rally, but then not show up. And by all accounts, this seems to have been at least somewhat uh, successful in the sense that it, it clearly contributed in some capacity to the Trump administration or the Trump campaign's overestimation of how many people would show up and the resulting kind of, you know, the optics looking terrible when only about 6,000 people showed up. And the reason that that's concerning is that we actually don't understand anything at all about um, how TikTok's algorithm works. It's a black box to anybody in the United States. And it's, you know, we don't have any evidence to suggest that it was manipulated, but it's also, we don't have any way of confirming that it wasn't. In particular, we, you know, this should be concerning because again, it's owned by, you know, the platform is owned by a company that we don't really have any access to. And if you're a foreign you know, one of the things that's different about China vis-a-vis -vis Russia, for example, is that there are no Russian social media platforms that are popular uh, in the United States and that provide a vector for disinformation over which the United States has even less control. And so I think the more we see TikTok growing, the more I'm concerned about what might happen on there in the lead up to 2020, which would, would obviously be much different than anything we've seen uh, in 2018 or 2016. So, Elaine, uh, what guardrails are available to prevent uh, Trump from engaging in voter suppression or otherwise disrupting the campaign? There's not many guardrails to prevent Trump from engaging in voter suppression. I mean, they're going to do that, frankly, prior to the Internet age political parties engaged in voter suppression all the time using other means. So this is just uh, this is just a, an old-fashioned tactic brought into the internet age. Obviously they're going to try and suppress the African American vote because that's not a Republican vote and they're going to try and sow discord within the Democratic Party as they did 4 years ago to try and and keep down the vote. I mean just try and keep keep fewer Democrats from voting or maybe move them to third parties, etc. So that I think will be pretty much the same. I think the difference is that the election apparatus in states has been hardened, so to speak, against external interference, whether that's from a domestic hacker or from the Russians or the Chinese or anybody else. And I think that that process is going to work probably a little bit better with the caveat that 
there will be an enormous number of absentee ballots because of COVID-19. And the confusion that may arise from just the sheer number and the inexperience of elected official election officials in dealing with those ballots may mean that there's a lot of confusion and uncertainty sown about the vote. And obviously, the Russians, particularly, who, as Chris accurately said, are interested in, you know, sort of just general American disruption. The Russians particularly are interested in making it look like somehow this election is not on the up and up and that there's there are things wrong um, going wrong and that there's corruption, etc. They've already started this by trying to by by echoing Donald Trump's um, statements about mail-in ballots, that there's they're very corrupt. And that's just nonsense. We've never seen corruption in mail-in ballots. And in fact, because they provide a paper trail that is then taken and locked in rooms around the state capitol where the elections are counted, they are actually safer. Paper ballots are actually safer than electronic ballots that could be easily hacked or that disappear after the election. So it's a it's a very, very interesting situation that we're facing in November, one where there could be a lot of uncertainty sown. On the other hand, I do think the states are now aware of this and are preparing for it. So Chris, Elaine mentioned absentee ballots, and some people have worried about budget cuts to the post office creating problems in terms of delivering all those mail-in ballots and therefore disrupting the election. How seriously should we be worried about that? I, you know, certainly on the budgetary side, you know, I, I think we want to make sure that um, we have all the resources in place to make, you know, to ensure the integrity of mail-in ballots and make sure that we, you know, anybody who wants to vote can do so. Um, I am worried about that a bit. The, the one silver lining that I see is that most of our electoral processes are controlled at a, at a fairly local level. And so, you know, I think most of the budgeting processes are also kind of happening there. And I, I, the, the reason I see a silver lining there is that I don't actually see a lot of room. I know there's a lot of fears, particularly among, you know, the left in the United States that the Trump administration might be able to engage in outright voter suppression by kind of cutting funding wholesale. And, you know, that's something that, you know, I'm certainly concerned about the Trump administration's voter suppression efforts, but one kind of saving grace of the the way that our electoral system is constructed is that it would actually be very hard for the Trump administration to do that um, at scale across the United States. And so, you know, again, at a local level in some jurisdictions or some areas, I am worried, but on a whole, I'm not as worried about kind of mail-in voting being a problem across the entire United States all at the same time. Elaine, how should journalists think about the various election problems we've been uh, talking about and how can they help the American public understand any problems that come up? I think journalists are going to play a very important role here, a very important civic role. I think the first thing they can do is make it clear to people how to vote absentee, because as we now have to get used to, the fact is that this pandemic isn't going away by November. There's going to be a lot of people, particularly older people, who don't want to go to crowded public places like polling places. And so we're going to have to adapt our voting in November to the reality of the pandemic. Um, States are, as we speak, busy 
changing their absentee ballot requirements and making it easier to vote absentee. A lot of states have moved to what we call no excuse absentee balloting. In other words, you just, if you want to vote absentee, you just ask for a ballot. You don't have to give an excuse. Some states keep their excuses, but have added fear of COVID-19 to the list of acceptable excuses for requesting a ballot. So there's there's changes going on there, and the journalists can do a great deal uh, of civic good just by conveying accurate information. If we go back to disinformation, right, the topic here, again, even before the internet, a favorite dirty trick of political campaigns was to try to tell the other party's voters the wrong day of the camp of the election. Oh no, the election isn't November 7th, it's November 8th. Or, oh, your polling place isn't at the high school. Your polling place has been changed to St. Mary's Church down the block. I mean, there's lots and lots of shenanigans like this. Obviously, the internet and email and social platforms make it a little bit cheaper to do that, but frankly, it's it's the same old dirty trick. So journalists can warn against those dirty tricks. Finally, I think we have to go to election night itself. Again, remember what we keep stressing here is that the Russians in particular are very interested in causing chaos and causing dysfunction and, and lack of trust in our electoral system. The journalists on election night need to be prepared to tell the nation that they will not have returns in all the races. It's simply not going to happen. My best estimate right now is that in-person voting is going to go down to 30 to 40 percent of the population, and there will probably be biases in who votes in person versus who files absentee. And therefore, the tools that people usually, the journalists usually have to predict elections, you know, building building models based on turnout and key precincts and things like that, we're just not going to have them. And so I think the journalists, rather than on election night panicking and saying, oh, dear, this is terrible, we don't know who won, need to be able to say we're not going to know for a week or two weeks or even a month. It's just going to take a long time to count all those absentee ballots. States have never done it before, other than the states that were already all mail-in states. And so if the journalists explain this, it'll be fine. If the journalists jump to conclusions and say, oh, this is terrible, this is terrible, it's 12, 15 the morning, uh, in the morning after election night, and we don't know who's president, and this is terrible. Well, it's not terrible, as long as they are counting ballots that are, you know, legally received and, and carefully stored. Chris, uh, what about the role of the U.S. intelligence community and the FBI in alerting state officials about various kinds of uh, problems? What should they be doing this uh, in this fall campaign? I think one of the things that they need to be doing uh, is coordinating closely both with uh, the tech platforms themselves and then also with uh, state officials. I think one of the challenges, if you're trying to catch or disrupt foreign influence operations, particularly when it comes to misinformation around electoral processes, is that those campaigns are often multi-platform and they're not just limited to Facebook or just Twitter. They're usually 
operated across all platforms, often even with a number of um, astroturfed websites, which makes it difficult for just you know any individual platform to have a, a full sense of what's going on. It also means that I think if you're in the government, one of the th- the value adds that they can provide um, is some of the digital forensics tools that they have to be able to, to capture some of the bigger picture uh, of what's going on online in consultation with you know, our major tech platforms. That's, that's kind of a, a key role that they're going to need to play. And one of the concerns I have um, is whether or not we're, we're properly structured or the U.S. government is properly structured uh, within the intelligence uh, service to be able to do that. I think we've got, we've made some progress since 2016 in that regard, but I think we still potentially have a ways to go. That's not necessarily to be alarmist. I think, again, like I think we'll, you know, by all accounts that I've kind of, uh, that I've seen and heard, I think we're headed very much in the right direction, but the, the role for them to play is to be that kind of mediator between, you know, the tech platforms and what's happening online on the one hand, and then local state officials and, and governments on the other. Elaine, we have outlined a number of problems in terms of disinformation and foreign interference, but at Brookings, we like to focus on remedies and not just problems. How can we safeguard voting and maintain the integrity of our election process? Well, I think there's a couple things we can do. I mean, first of all, there is always a money question. In the first COVID relief bill, there was $400 million included specifically for state election offices to upgrade their scanners, to hire more people, cover the all the extra postage that was going to be needed to send out all these absentee ballots, et cetera. That is probably not enough. I'm not sure that there will be be any money for elections in the next COVID relief bill, assuming that there even is one. And so really, we need more money to let people simply upgrade everything for a new era of voting where most of the voting is um, absentee as opposed to in person. I think the second thing people can do is actually just civic groups and political parties need to tell people how to vote safely. And frankly, there I I have much more uh, confidence because I think that it is in the interest of political parties to get their voters to the polls, which is why for all of the stuff that Donald Trump has been spewing about how terrible mail-in ballots are, all across the country, Kentucky, Ohio, for instance, Republican secretaries of state are working hard to make absentee balloting easy and safe and doing a lot of reforms and publicizing those reforms to the citizens. So, I, you know, it's just, it's, it's slightly counterintuitive that Donald Trump is even doing this because it's not in his own self-interest, but that's, that's another story. So the second thing is that the, is education. And then I think the third thing really is, and, and I, I learned this in reading about some recent studies that have been done about the disin, about disinformation. It turns out that simply rigorously, rigorously pointing out the sources of disinformation turns out to be very effective in causing citizens to not forward things and to not hype things. They, they die faster than if you make fun of them 
or if you try to argue them on the merits. No, of course, Hillary Clinton could never have had a pedophile ring at pizza, at a pizza parlor because she was busy that day, right? Or, you know, something like that. And, and apparently, simply outing sources is a very effective way to counter disinformation. And finally, just citizen sophistication the growth in citizen sophistication, warning people what suspicious emails look like, what suspicious sites look like, et cetera. That, that's, that's really quite important. And I think in the end, frankly, that's probably how we're going to really cope with this. Chris, uh, what do you think we need to do in order to safeguard voting and maintain the integrity of the process? I think, you know, one way of thinking about this is what individuals should be doing. And I think you know, everything Elaine uh, said was spot on. Another is, you know, what platforms and governments should be doing. And in that regard, I think one thing I would really want to stress, because I know it's a, it's a point of conversation uh, right now online, is, you know, what the U.S. should be doing in terms of countering some of these foreign influence operations that are designed to target the legitimacy of U.S. elections and whether we should begin to potentially even strike back with disinformation campaigns of our own against Russia or China. And the, the first thing I would say is just I, I, I cannot strongly enough um, recommend against doing that. I think it's it's always going to be in our interest to protect uh, the integrity and legitimacy and credibility of, of uh, democratic discourse and in particular of just the information environment online. And I think for us to begin to attack that elsewhere is to, to play into the hands of, of those that would wish our own electoral systems to be compromised in some way. So I, I think we need to stay above the fray is the first thing I would say at a government level. The second thing I would say is that we need at the platform level, one of the things that I, I think we need to do after this election is over is really take a hard look at kind of how we govern platforms and in particular the distribution of disinformation, whether in, in particular as it applies to electoral information. And you know, I'd love to see more regulatory and policy activity around transparency of distribution algorithms in particular. It's, you know, I, I talked briefly about TikTok earlier. The issue, you know, in addition to TikTok being a foreign-owned company, like if, if they had to operate in the U.S. and there were really strict transparency safeguards around, you know, how these distribution algorithms work, I think it would be a separate issue. And, you know, those those algorithms, I think, until we have greater access and understanding of why particular pieces of disinformation are being spread so widely and so fast, it's going to be really hard for us to get a, a handle of this problem. And just to give you a scale, a sense of the scale of the issue, you know, the video that Elaine mentioned earlier, it racked up some something like upwards of 20 million views on Facebook, I believe within a matter of hours. And Facebook, to its credit, has acknowledged it was too slow to kind of counteract it. But we need to have a better understanding. Um, you know, even those of us you know, outside of Facebook, as well as those inside Facebook, of how it spreads so quickly and so fast uh, without it being properly vetted and, and uh, verified first. And so and, until we kind of have those systems in place, my fear is that we're going to go through this every election cycle. Hopefully we can get ahead of it as much as we can in the next few months. But in the long run, I think we need some pretty significant reforms in that area. Elaine, what are the odds of a contested election? And if something like that actually does happen, how do disputes get resolved? The Constitution provides a pretty clear uh, path for what happens in the case of contested presidential elections. People are probably aware we actually elect electors to the Electoral College as opposed to electing the president directly. So first of all, 
states have will have slightly over one month between election day and the December 14th, 2020, which is the day the Electoral College meets, that's according to the Constitution, they'll have slightly over one month to decide which slate of electors is going to go cast their, be elected and therefore cast their vote for president. So you've got a month to sort this out. Having a lot of absentee ballots is actually a plus, not a minus, in a case of a very, very close contested election. And the reason is you've got a paper trail. Before COVID, the big innovation that states were making was they were adding paper ballots to their election processes so that there would be a paper trail, a verifiable paper trail for a recount situation. All those paper ballots go to a tightly guarded room in the state capitol. There are nobody's allowed in there except the election officials and then people who watch the count from each political party, one from each political party. And they are guarded. It's very hard to get into those rooms. It will take a while, but in fact, they will be able to tell if there is a winner or a loser, or God forbid, there's a tie, which I don't think has ever happened, or maybe very rarely. So there is, every state, by the way, has a recount provision. It's in their law. Some of them are automatically triggered if the if the results are very, very close, and the recount simply begins. If, in fact, no one wins an electoral college majority, it goes into the House of Representatives. And there the the Constitution outlines what happens. And there is, again, a process for electing the president. So if this is a close, you know, election, we don't know who won, etc. There are methods, these were outlined in the Constitution, there are methods for figuring out who's the president. Chris, we're going to give you the last question. What happens if Trump loses the election, but claims the election was rigged and refuses to leave office? That obviously plunges us into a bit of a constitutional crisis. I would say one of the things that I'm a little bit heartened by is that, you know, if it comes to that, we're going to have a lot of elites, you know, the elite leaders within our political system, but also even within our military are going to have to come and signal kind of where they stand on the issue. And one of the, to the extent that I, I find a silver lining in, in how that scenario might play out, I think back to the, the Black Lives Matter protests earlier this summer, uh, and in particular, after Trump took a really uh, heavy-handed approach to dealing with the protests within Washington, D.C., you saw this kind of immediate, almost visceral reaction by very high-level leaders within the military and even across some of the political landscape really repudiating what he had done in the use of force, in particular the National Guard. And for Trump to get away with the scenario that you're describing, he's going to need the military to come in behind him in some fashion. And the level of consensus among elite leaders uh, within the military establishment that the Trump administration and the National Guard had kind of overplayed its hand in that context earlier this summer, to me, offers a, a glimmer of hope, I guess I could say, that if we actually did face that kind of worst case scenario, that there's still enough institutional checks against that, that we might be able to get through it. But hopefully, I really hope we don't actually have to you know, find out the answer to that question in real life, to be honest. 
So I want to thank Elaine and Chris for sharing their thoughts with us about disinformation and foreign interference. Uh, they write regularly uh, on the Brookings uh, website, and you can find their work at brookings.edu. Let us know if you have any reactions to this podcast. Uh, you can send feedback to dwest at brookings.edu. That's dwest at brookings.edu. We look forward to hearing your suggestions, and thanks for tuning in. Brookings Cafeteria podcast is made possible with the help of an amazing team of colleagues. My thanks go out to audio engineer Gaston Reveredo, Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, who does the book interviews, Marie Wilkin, Adriana Pita, and Chris McKenna for their collaboration, and Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, The Current, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. Fred Dews.